My name is Matt. I'm the, one of the pastors here focusing on communities and, and people. Um, and per normal, I've got a story to start us off with. So it's my freshman year of high school. Uh, and it's a half day, which if you remember having half days, like, they are the best. Where for me, growing up in Portland, I went to David Douglas, and we had eight different classes uh, and so on a half day, for some weird reason, they decided to jam all eight of those classes into one day in like a three-hour period, right? So you're like in class for like 20 minutes or something, and it's like, oh, on to the next one. You didn't have time to tell us what homework is? Too bad, right? And you just go. So, but half days also meant then you had the rest of the day to do whatever you wanted, with parent permission, of course. So this half day in particular was Valentine's Day. So I did what every normal freshman guy does on Valentine's Day. So I, hang, I hung out with the bros. Like it was guy time on Valentine's Day. So we were all hanging out because we were way too scared to talk to the ladies. Uh, so we're like, what are we going to do? Because lunch hasn't happened yet. You go home before that. We all ride my friend Chris's bus. He lived in, in the East Portland Mall 205 area, if some of you are familiar. And Chris is like, I know what we're doing to celebrate val Valentine's Day day as the guys, we're going to Hometown Buffet, <laughs> which is like a blast from the past. Some of you, maybe younger folks, are like, Old Town Buff or Hometown Buffet, what is that? Well, it is a buffet that maybe is a notch above Izzy's, or maybe not even, because they don't even exist anymore. They, were, they weren't doing so well. Um, but Hometown Buffet for a freshman guy was like delicacy. Um, and so Chris had a gift card. And he was like, I can get us into Hometown Buffet. So we go, and we wisely look at the prices ahead of time um, and see that maybe four of us could get in uh, and pay for the buffet. There were 12 of us hanging out. <laughs> in that moment, however, I remembered something my dad told me, a story from when I was younger, that his mom, my nana, growing up, also liked to frequent buffets. And nana was a frugal lady, and kind of a sneaky lady, because she was always a little bummed that when she had leftovers on her plate from the buffet that she was just too stuffed to eat. She didn't want that to go to waste. But at buffets, there's no such thing as take-home boxes, because it just seems like people might take advantage of that. So what Nana did is slide in a box of Ziploc bags into her purse or her bag, and as the waiter leaves and no staff's watching, just a little scrapey-scrapey into the bag, and then home it goes with her in her purse. And I, as a freshman boy, remember this important story my father told me. <laughs> so we go to Chris's house first, and we have our backpacks, and we find that Chris's mom has on hand freezer bag plastic bags. So we load those up in our backpacks. We go back to Hometown Buffet, four of us, the four chosen, me, Brian, Juan, and then Chris, we, we go in and we feast. Like, we eat like crazy, like pizza that's been out for several hours, like kind of cold fried chicken, fries, mashed potatoes that probably were made out of some powdery substance, um, and, and soft serve ice cream, and it's all on your plate at the same time. It's amazing. But then after we were done eating, we were thinking about our hungry boys back at... Chris's house. So each of us opens up our backpack. We line it with a freezer bag, Ziploc bag. 
and would just go and get plate after plate and just scrape under the table into the bag. Now, let me pause for a second. This is not the part of the sermon that's application for take home and do this. Don't put these things into practice because this is what we would call stealing. There's a reason that they don't have take-home boxes. And I think why I remember this so clearly is because I still remember the shame I felt. <laughs> like, as I'm, like, trying to be sneaky, and there's no way. They didn't see four freshman guys, like, scraping these things into our backpacks under the table. I just don't think they cared at Mall 205 home, Hometown Buffet. Um, but I still remember, like, I don't think this is right, actually. But we got bag after bag after bag. We weren't caught. We take it back to my friend's house, and we plop our bags on the table. We unload it, and just bag after bag of, like, pizza and drumsticks and, like, French fries and JoJo's, all that, and all kind of mixed together. We weren't thoughtful, but our friends were like, no way! Like, you brought this, and you got dessert, and they got to have a part of the feast as well. I told my friend Chris that I was going to share this this morning. Uh, we just hung, hung out this last week, and he was like, man, we were like Robin Hood. I was like, what? <laughs> There's no way that that's what Robin Hood was doing. Uh, but if that makes you sleep better at night, Chris, that's great. Um, <laughs> but with this story, like, what's the point? There's a cost, right, that actually none of us could pay, and not even Chris could pay, ultimately. Like, he couldn't cover it for everyone, but there was a cost that, that none of us could pay. There there was ultimately this un very undeserved gift. <laughs> one to me, Brian, and Juan, but then also to our friends. Like, there was no way they deserved to receive any of this food to be a part of the feast. And each of us received access to this feast that was not of our own doing. And we've been talking a lot about food uh, the last couple weeks. And as I was even just practicing this morning, I, my stomach started growling as I was, like, preaching, so I'm so sorry for you this morning if that's going to be the case, but hopefully that becomes a sign and a symbol to us of not just physical hunger, but our spiritual hunger for Jesus. We talked about cre being created to be filled by God, to be satisfied by God and God alone, but in our broken world, we do not look to God on our own to satisfy our deepest longings and needs. So in that, we become like people starving for hope, for peace, for love, for joy, but we look for it in all the wrong places. And we talked about these counterfeit feasts, this offering from a deceiver that, hey, don't eat what God has to offer. Eat these things instead. This will satisfy you. This will fill you up. But these feasts, this sin, ultimately just leaves us emptier and emptier and emptier. But then last week, Greg shared with us that Jesus himself is the feast that we long for, that our souls were made for, that we were made to be filled with his life. Jesus comes declaring that I am the bread of life. Anyone who drinks from the water that I give him, they will never thirst again. And Jesus wasn't talking about mere food and drink, but he was talking about the things of God, spiritual matters, spiritual food, spiritual drink to satisfy our souls now and forevermore. The night before Jesus is crucified, Jesus takes a meal that would have been familiar to his disciples. And he redefines it to be 
the meal that we participate together in on a regular basis, the Lord's Supper or communion, a meal where Jesus is the center, and he's the one that gives us access to share in this meal with him. Now, I want to say, I, I was thinking about this the last couple days. With what we're going to talk about this morning, for a lot of this, for a lot of us, this may seem like, yeah, I know about Jesus dying on the cross. I know about his body broken, his blood shed, and me being set free from sin. And I fall into that category, too, oftentimes in my life. Like, oh, I've, I've heard this, or I know this, or I believe this. And man, Peter's words in one of his letters hit me earlier this week where he writes to this group of believers, and he says, I don't write you these things because you don't know them. I write you these things to remind you, and that this might only increase in you walking in the truth. And my encouragement to us this morning, because maybe there are those of us here that, like, we, we really haven't, like, accepted or taken hold of the truth of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. But then there's some of us that maybe we hear this message of communion about what Jesus has done, and we keep thinking about it for other people who haven't yet received him, when we need this truth to be confirmed and, uh, and, and remembered in our lives on a weekly basis, on a daily basis. And so maybe there's even just an area of life, a situation, a circumstance where you need to remember the truth of what our God has done through his son. I needed that this week. I need it this morning because I constantly need my thinking and my practice and how I live shifted. So my invitation to each of you then is to lean in and to look at Christ and to meet him in his word as he invites us to feast on his life. So would you pray with me before we dive in? God, I thank you for how much you have just opened my eyes in Scripture during this series to this analogy of us hungering and thirsting for you. And I pray this morning that, not, not just that you would solidify, Lord, but you just help us, Lord. We have so many barriers that keep us from seeing the reality of what you've done. Help us to see that we are in Christ. And we pray that more and more this would be what inhabits our being, that we would find our identity in him and in you alone. We thank you for good news, Lord. We thank you that you have not left us hopeless, you have not left us starving, that you have come into the world. And we need you now in this moment to come in our midst to cause us to see you cause us to have hearts that are transformed. Would you do that in us by, our, by your spirit, Lord? Amen. So if you have a Bible, turn to Exodus, Exodus 11. Um, as you're turning there, where we're diving into this story is uh, God's people are slaves in Egypt. And this has actually been a story we've referred to kind of week after week as there's a lot of origins here of this whole idea of hungering and thirsting, as we see God's people set free from slavery, they need their lives redefined now, not being known as slaves, but being God's chosen people. 
But where we're at now is that they are still in slavery, and God has heard their cries. If they've cried out to the Lord for 400 years asking for deliverance, God has heard their cries, and at just the right time, he provides a deliverer. He sends Moses and then Aaron to set his people free, and he used a succession of plagues to do this over and over again, setting before Pharaoh, their tyrannical king, that, hey, let my people go. And we see over and over again, either Pharaoh hardens his own heart or God hardens Pharaoh's heart, ultimately bending evil towards God's good purposes to set his people free. But over and over again, Pharaoh hasn't let God's people free until we come to this final plague. And this plague is, is gnarly. Like God says that in all of Egypt, in every household, death will pass over and the firstborn of every family will die. And it seems to be, as you read through this passage, that this will not only impact the Egyptians, but this will impact the Israelites that are living in Egypt as well. But then we read in Exodus 11, verse 6, there will be a loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So before this even happens, God is saying, this will happen to the whole of Egypt, but my people will be saved from death. How is that going to come about? God goes on and gives instructions for a meal that's going to take place in the Israelite homes. A meal where death will pass over these households if they follow these instructions that God has given. Exodus 12, 3 and verse 5 were read this morning, but let me read them again. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Verse 5, the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goat. So there is this picture of a perfect, spotless lamb, which if we've been reading our Bibles to this point, this should call us back to a couple scenarios. One that we talked about before, where there's an offering of a perfect, spotless lamb, and it's from Abel. Remember Cain and Abel, they, off, they have their separate offerings, and what Abel offers the Lord is this perfect, spotless lamb, and God is pleased with his offering. And what they're to do here in Exodus with that lamb is to sacrifice it, but also to have a meal as a household together around this sacrificed lamb. Uh, there's lots of steps that God gives them in how to prepare the meat and how to deal even with the leftovers. He didn't talk about freezer bags and like taking that in your backpacks, though. Um, and this part will be an essential part of the meal on, alongside the unleavened bread. And in verse 7 of 12, then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Verse 12, on the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. 
The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come that you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And as people in 2023 reading this, we hear all of this about blood and on door frames, we kind of go, "Is this is a little barbaric. Like, what's happening here? Like, if you were to start reading the Bible and you come across this, you're like, whoa, this is a little weird. Like, what's happening in this whole procedure that's going on for God's people to be saved? Blood has always represented the life of an individual or a creature. And God then makes it abundantly clear, the blood, the life of every being belongs to me. So the spilling of blood then, when someone does that, is a great offense to God. Because that life belongs to him. It didn't belong to you. You didn't get to take that person's life. When someone dies, there's mourning associated with it. Even if blood isn't spilled, this picture of the life of that person is now gone. And so here, when a life is spent, when there's a sacrificed life, when there is blood that represents that life on the doorframe, it is the death of one life covering the life of another. This covering of the lamb ultimately leads to deliverance from death and deliverance from slavery as the people are set free the next day. And for each household that has the blood of the lamb, this perfect spotless lamb on the doorframe, they are sealed in the covering and the life of the lamb. This Passover meal has been kept for generations and is even still kept today by Jewish people as a testimony and a reminder of God's faithfulness and power to save his people. But then we fast forward to Luke chapter 22. Generations later from the first Passover, Jesus has his disciples. And it's that time of the year that the Passover would be celebrated together. And he says to his disciples, we are going to have this Passover meal together. Make preparations. Get everything we, you need. Go, and go to this guy's house and ask him if we can use it because I want to share this meal with you. So I want us, as we read this passage in Luke 22, take all that symbolism and imagery of what God did in Exodus into this meal that then we join Jesus and his disciples as this is going to be completely filling their minds as they share in this bread and they share in the meat of this lamb and they join together in this meal until Jesus, like Jesus often does, he changes the trajectory of what had always been so normal and common to them. Verse 15, Jesus says this, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before... I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this, divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus takes the meal that they had grown up with, that they were familiar with, and shows them what it was always pointing forwards to. They had always grown up that this was a meal where we look back on God's faithfulness and what he had done. And that is still true. But now Jesus is saying, look ahead to what's about to happen and how this is going to change everything. I wish that we were in there to see like the body language of the disciples as he's doing this. When he, for one, says, I'm about to suffer. What was that like? Jesus often said some things that really caught them off guard and were weird or like, dude, where did that come from? Like, that's out of left field. But then he goes and he breaks bread and he says, this is like my body that's about to be broken. And then he points to the cup and he says, this, this represents my blood, which is poured out for you. Like if we were sitting in that room with Jesus, not knowing what was coming, we'd be like, are you okay? Like what's, what's happening here, Jesus? Like why are you talking about suffering and death and blood and your body being broken? Like we're supposed to be celebrating the Passover right now. But what stood out to me is I sat in Exodus 12 and this passage in Luke 22 this week is Jesus makes reference to the bread that they always were accustomed to, this unleavened bread, and says, this is my body. And then he makes reference to the cup, and he says, this represents the blood. So maybe they were even tracking of like, okay, like the blood on the doorframe. But what Jesus doesn't reference that was the central part of the meal is the lamb. Like he doesn't point to the meat at the middle of the table and then talk about the lamb and redefine it. But he, instead of talking about the lamb, talks about himself. He says, instead of a lamb's body being broken, it'll be my body. Instead of a lamb's blood that spilled, it will be my blood that spilled. Which makes sense then when Jesus' own cousin, John the Baptist, sees him coming down the road in John 1, 29. He says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Otherwise, out of context, it's like, John, are you okay? Like, what is happening here? God gave John the eyes to see who Jesus actually is and what he was going to do. And Jesus now is wanting his disciples to see in this meal, look at what I'm going to do. And someday you need to remember this, to remember who I am and what I've done for you. Because again, a spotless, perfect lamb will be killed. Jesus' body broken, his blood shed, and that's exactly what happens in the following hours as Jesus goes to the cross. His body broken, his blood shed. And this is the same Jesus who we just heard last week say, I'm the bread of life. Anyone who's thirsty, come to me, and I will quench your thirst. You will never thirst again. And how confusing then for the one that said, in me is life, in me is the way to be satisfied, to then see him hanging on a cross, and he's dying. He's broken. He's bleeding out. 
for his disciples and those who trusted and believed in him, wouldn't they be so confused? Like, I thought you were bringing life. Like, how is this leading to life? In what way could death ever bring to life? Because as Jesus is on the cross, the bread of life is dying. And the one that said we would never thirst in John 19, Jesus says, I am thirsty. And this was a physical reality that Jesus was parched. His lips were cracked and dry as he hung there. He was fully human in his experience of the cross. And yet he is also fully God experiencing this. So why is this feast of life that we've been talking about that's in Jesus, why is he broken? Why is he on the cross, his life poured out? Why is he dead? I thought he was supposed to be life. Do you remember where this started? We talked a couple weeks ago about in Genesis, God makes two trees in the middle of the garden. One is a tree of life, and one is a tree that is titled the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but God makes it clear if you eat from this tree, you will die. This is a tree of death. And a major reason, or maybe even the reason that Adam and Eve, once they've sinned or kicked out of the garden, is God saying, you cannot eat from this tree of life now. Because I will not let a sinful, broken, fallen people live forever this way. And doesn't that feel like our reality at times, though? Like brokenness, it's just going to be forever. Like I can't think of a time when I'm not going to be sad. I can't think of a time or picture actually having perfect relationships with people. God, I can't even fathom not struggling with this sin anymore. It feels like sin will be or brokenness will be forever. But God in the very beginning pages of Scripture says, no, I will not let sin go on and brokenness go on forever. When you're in this fallen state, you cannot have this life. But now we have Jesus hanging on one tree. And it's a tree of death. But miraculously, it's a tree of life. Because just as the blood covered, the blood of the lamb covered the household, and for those who were inside, they were sealed in the deliverance that God brought about from death and ultimately from slavery. So for those who believe in the one, the perfect spotless lamb that hangs on the tree of death and also the tree of life, we are sealed in the lamb's perfect protection and life eternally. We have gained access to God through Jesus being our substitute on this tree. Through his life poured out, through his death, he also then gives us his life. That when we're sealed in this lamb, when we're sealed in Jesus, we are saved from death. And we're sealed into his life, his righteousness, his salvation. And the New Testament writers, they hit this theme over and over again. They use the verbiage in him, in Christ, with him, 
Because of him, over and over and over, do we recognize how our life is now laid over the top and hidden in Jesus because of what he's done. Romans 6 is just such a rich passage that hits this, and there's a lot here, so maybe you'll have to read it as I've had to read it again and again and again to just even catch all the ways that Paul says, look at how you are in Jesus now. He says, or don't you know in verse 3 that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. And maybe you're sitting here and you're like, this is amazing. And maybe you're like, I have been so many times and I hear this and like, yeah, I know that. I don't know if this image is helpful or not, and hopefully it doesn't sound weird, but it's, it's just a picture I can't get out of my brain as I've been sitting in this idea of being in Christ and how this passage and others talk about us being in Christ. So there's Jesus hanging on the cross. And it's not like God just says, I just like went in like a surgeon and picked out this part of Matt and then like stuck it to Jesus on the cross so sin might be done away with that way. Sometimes that's how I picture sin. Sin is this like thing that I don't like that's inside of me and I just need somebody to come and take it out. But the, the visual that Paul, I think, gives us here is he says, think about your old self, your life apart from Jesus, where you were in sin, struggling to find hope, looking for hope and life in all the wrong places. And then I get this like, translucent picture of Matt. And then there, God picks up that version of me and then places it inside Christ as he's on a cross. That it is very much me who dies because I'm hidden in Jesus. So that when Jesus is killed, old me dies with him. When Jesus is raised, new me is raised with Christ. That we are, I, I wish I could just, I wish I had words. I'm not very like, I don't know. I don't have the words to describe this. There's that video Greg shows like every like four years um, where it's like, I wish I could describe it to you, right? I just don't have the words of what God has been showing me in this past week of what it really means to be in him. That if I died in Christ Jesus, like that is dead and gone. And how God sees me is only through the lens of his son and his life. And that is what I have received. 
That's what I get to walk in. That's what I get to live in. There's no, like, old mat anymore. That's not how God views me. I've been raised to new life. If you are in Christ, you have been raised to new life. For those who believe in him, we are sealed in his life by his blood, and this cannot be taken from us. About eight years ago, I was sitting down at a Starbucks having an Americano and a pastry, so a very simple meal, and it was a lot cheaper back then. And I was sitting with Kathleen's parents, and this was before we were married, and I was sitting with them because I was asking if I could marry their daughter. And I was so nervous, so nervous that I actually don't remember most things that were shared at that little thing because I kind of blacked out. But I do remember they said yes. Uh, and I remember Kat's dad leaning in and, and saying, Matt, we love you, and we are excited for you to marry our daughter. But you have to promise me one thing, that divorce is off the table. That no matter what life throws your way, know that you have people that are there to help you through anything. That it's not even a category for the two of you. Is that how we view what God has done for us in his son? If we are in Christ, divorce is off the table. There are times in our lives when we fail and we sin and we keep going to the things that we know God would never have us do. We're not living the life that God would have us live. But if we are in Christ, he will never leave or forsake you. When he says in Romans that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, God will never, the Father will never not love his Son. And if we are in the Son, we always will have the love of the Father poured to us through Jesus. No matter what happens. Because we are in Christ. So even if we should sin, we fail, if we struggle with doubt again, when we wonder if we've messed it all up with God because we said, I was never going to do that thing or treat that person that way, or I just feel like I fail over and over and over, the love of the Father is poured into us through Jesus. We gain Jesus's standing with his Father. Jesus says in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Which then would go on to say, in me, everything is possible. We have received undeserved access. Our debt of sin being paid and receiving the life, the feast of life that God intended for us in the beginning. Life in him, life with him now and forevermore. And in order to live, we have to be those that take in this feast of Jesus' life daily. Because if you remember, the counterfeit feast not only wanted to be consumed by the one who ate, but wanted to consume that person. What God says to Cain, sin is crouching and it desires to devour you. This redeemed meal that Jesus gives, union with him, common sharing in Christ, 
This is to be received and taken in, and this is to consume all of our being as we are hidden in Christ, Paul writes in Colossians 3.3. When Jesus prays for his believers in John 17, he prays that they would be in him and that he would be in them just as he is in the Father and the Father is in him. The life of the Christian is continually realizing, remembering, and taking hold of what we have received access to in Christ. Do you remember the garden when God creates all this plant life and he says to Adam, eat from any tree except this one. You have access to all this good stuff. Papaya, a mango, watermelon. It doesn't just have to be in summertime. You have access to it all, Adam, but don't eat from this one tree. I think at times we struggle with the idea with Jesus, especially if there's anyone here who's on the fence or, uh, or even not on the fence with Jesus. It's just like, I come to church because I, I feel like I have to, but I don't know about this whole trusting, following Jesus. We look at Jesus and we think it's a restrictive diet. We look at Jesus and we go, man, but if I follow Jesus, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't think like that. I can't enjoy these things in the same way. I can't ha find happiness from this. And to a degree, that is true. But all of that stems from eating from one tree, right? It's one tree that all of that comes from. With Jesus, we have access to a feast of everything we could possibly ever need that actually will satisfy our souls. Life in him abundantly. As Jesus has the Sermon on the Mount, he continually, and the blessed are those, he's saying flourishing. Like, look at how good life is when it is lived this way, following me. And that is the feast that Jesus lays before us. That also means we turn from some things. We're not going to go eat from that tree anymore. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes, Praise be to, God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. I wish I could explain to you fully what that means, but I don't know. If we were to even search through Scripture and try to find every spiritual blessing that is listed out there, we'd be like, all of this we have access to in Christ? How could I ever begin to feast on all of this? I need a to-go box, right? Because God never runs out. He always has more, and all of it is in sealed in Jesus. What we actually need, what we were created for. So, when we receive this meal of communion on a regular basis together, as we partake in a physical meal that week after week points us to the spiritual reality of what God has done through Christ, this meal in and of itself, this little cracker and this little juice, does not save any of us. But it points to the one who does save. Same way, baptism does not save any of us, but the reality of what God has done, the story that baptism uh, points to of Jesus being the center, 
He is the one who truly does save. We recognize with this meal, with this small cracker and cup, that it is just a sample of what's to come. Even as Jesus sat with his own disciples and administered the first communion, he says, I'm not going to drink from the vine again until you're with me in my kingdom, when my kingdom comes, alluding to this meal that his believers will get to participate in with him in his perfect kingdom. There's another meal that's coming, and we'll talk about that a little more in a couple weeks. This meal we participate in is a reminder, a declaration, a banner that we have union with Christ and we are both dead to sin and alive in him. This meal centers around him, not us. In our individualistic culture, we perhaps have overemphasized the reflective state that's supposed to take place during communion, and this isn't an original thought from myself. Uh, I've heard several theologians and pastors talk about this. And why this has happened in a lot of ways in our culture is based off of 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul's writing to a church that's a hot mess, and when it comes to their practices, including their participation in the Lord's Supper, they are all over the place. Verse 28, though, in his writing to them, this is kind of the passage that we use to really emphasize the reflective state during communion, where it says, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. But let's look and see what comes before and after this verse. Verse 20, Paul writes to them, So then, Corinthians, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God by humili humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. The problem the Corinthians were having, actually, is they were so self-focused that they weren't considering the larger body of Christ in their gatherings and not considering God, that they were coming together in a home to partake in this meal, which they didn't just have a little bit of grape juice and a little cracker. This was like a full-blown meal that they um, would participate in as they would have communion. And some would go ahead of others and be like, man, I've skipped lunch today. That loaf of bread looks awesome. And just like dive in and not leave any for others. Or some would be like, I haven't had wine in a minute. And so then they just start chugging the wine that was supposed to be a part of this communion feast. And why Paul's so angry and God is so angry, part of it is they're not considering the poor in their community who don't have these things. And this meal is a way to say, we have common sharing together in Christ. What's mine is yours, and we, what's his is ours, so we share in this. So then, verse 28 makes a little more sense. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the body or eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Consider each other as you're coming to this meal and consider God. Less about focus on self. Right? And part of that, what we do with it is like, man, I've, man, as I come to communion, I think about my sins and I think about like how bad maybe I've been this week and 
gosh, I got to make that right, where a lot of the time what God talks about with sin, not that that's bad to think about as we come to the table, we should look back and we should see that our sins were killed in Christ. Our old self was killed. That's part of this meal. But also we should look around and be like, and we have received his life. Like the life of Christ is in this space as we have this meal. Death and life overlapped. So if it's not only personal examination that we should have during this time of communion, what should we focus on? And I'll give you three things that I think we've shared before, but it's to look back, it's to look forward, and it's to look around. Looking back, a pastor named Kyle Worley said this, the Lord's Supper is Advent every Sunday. This longing this desire for the Messiah to come. Every Sunday that we participate in this meal, we, one, reflect back on God's faithfulness to his people and to us that he sent his son. This is not just for the Christmas season that we should focus on this, but every week, every day, God, you sent your son to us so that we might have his life and be set free. We also can look back and remember our old self, and that that old self has been killed and laid in the tomb with Christ. And when we're struggling with doubt, we're struggling with sin, we remember that we were raised to new life in Christ. We also look forward that this meal is just a taste of what's to come, that we still struggle, but we are those that struggle with hope. Remember where all of this is heading. That Jesus is desiring to eat this meal with us someday in his perfect kingdom. We can rejoice as we share in this meal that ultimately everything will be made right. Every tear will be wiped from our eyes by God himself and we will live in perfect relational harmony with him and all his creation. This meal proclaims we are waiting for this second coming, this second advent of Jesus to return and set all things right forever. But we also look around and I love this quote from this pastor, J.T. English. Communion is the moment in our service where we are all preachers. We miss out. If we're simply self-focused during communion, we need to look around in the room of what God has not only done in our lives, but in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because as each person that has trusted in Jesus comes to the table, that is a story proclaiming the gospel as they take that little bread and that little cup. We don't know all the details of how God has worked in that individual's life, but they were once dead in sin, and they're alive in Christ now, and we will be with them forever in his kingdom. The gospel, when we take this meal together, is proclaimed by all of us in this space. And it causes us to imagine the stories. Imagine how God might have saved that individual. And to desire to grow in our interest in knowing one another as well. To know the stories of what God has done. To hear those stories. And if you're here and you haven't trusted in Jesus, I hope you look around during that time too. 
because as each person comes to the table, I hope that what you hear from God in that moment is, yes, and I saved them, and I saved them too. And you don't know the brokenness in their story, but I saved them. And for you, if I was willing to die for all of them, would I not be willing to die for you too? Those who are serving communion this morning can come forward and the band can come up to lead us in song as we receive this meal and we'll take it back to our seats. And one of the reasons that we receive it all together is we are one body participating in Christ Jesus together. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread, the center of the meal that is Jesus. Would you stand with me and pray as we sing? Lord, we thank you for this story, this picture, this reality of what has been accomplished through Jesus. We thank you for access to yourself. We could not save ourselves, Lord. Nothing in this world could save us. Nothing could satisfy us. And you came. You came as a human so that you might be the perfect lamb that would take our place and offer your life to cover us so that we might live in you, through you, now and forever. Help us as we eat, Lord, to be filled with your joy, to be filled with peace, to be filled with recognizing the reconciling reality of what Christ has given us. In your great name, amen. My hope for myself and I extend that same invitation to you as actually just carried over from the last week that we would increase our awe of what God has done through Christ, that we would both treasure him. And then in turn, like even, so this, one of the things this morning as I was walking, praying um, for the in Christ reality for me, recently um, I was just confronted with how at times I, have like a me-against-the-world mentality, uh, especially in this last year of my life. And that causes defensiveness and some other things, too, where I hear things incorrectly that people say because I view like people are out to get me. In Christ, that's not true. Like, he has overcome the world. For one, I know because I belong to a body of believers. That's not how we view each other. And that's not the, the mentality I should take. But in Christ, he's overcome the world. So even if everyone is out to get Matt, which isn't true, it's no longer true in Christ because he's the overcomer. And so I invite you, where do you need to have that awe of what he's done and what he's overcome? Two quick practices. So we just want to give you something tangible to do each week. Greg referred to this one this past week, but in any meal that we partake in this week, uh, most likely something died in order for us to receive life, to take in this meal. Would we just take a moment 
and thank Christ for his death so that we might receive life eternal now and forevermore. That could be with your family or with your, on your own at work, just having those little reminders throughout the day. And the next is this. Next week, the theme for the sermon is who's invited to this feast? And intentionally, we're doing that because we recognize that on the Christmas, like, gathering, we just get some more people in this building. And sometimes it's you inviting friends or family that are in town to join you. Sometimes we just have people from our community that they want to be in a church on Christmas Day, Christmas Eve, around that season for some reason. Maybe God might be using that to call them to himself. And we want to make it loud and clear that who's invited to this life that Jesus has, it's the poor, it's the broken, it's the weak, as we see shepherds, it's the far off, as we see shepherds and magi be the ones that this proclamation is made to, that the king is here. And we want them to know, you are invited to this. So, for one, let's be hosts this next Sunday, uh, and let's welcome people with that good news in how we treat them, how we go out of our way to say hello. As we spend time listening to in their, their story, whatever they'll give us of how they got to this Sunday here in our midst. The other thing, too, is there may be simple ways to, with what we've received in Christ, the blessing we've received, to be generous to our neighbors, to our family during this season. With what we've received, similar to hometown buffet, how can we bag it up and give it to others as well? That maybe the thing is you want to bake cookies or some Christmas treat and take it around to your neighbors, and maybe for some of these neighbors, this will be your first conversation that you've ever had with them. And you could invite them to Christmas Eve service. That might not be the right next step to take uh, with these individuals. Maybe it's just getting their name down. Um, maybe with some closer neighbors asking, man, is there anything I could be praying for for you in this Christmas season? Or inviting them into your own home for a meal. Or inviting them to one of these services. So think about where we can be generous with what we've received in Jesus this week.